0: You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. Okay, well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. Um, But Mike decided uh, last night that he just couldn't do it. And so what I have developed... For you today, I just want you to know that I need you to give me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> because what I'm going to present to you this morning was developed between three and six. And so whatever happens to come across as incoherent, I just need your grace. Okay? Because it's probably going to happen. You're probably going to go, I probably wrote something down going, That sounded good at 4 a.m., but I shouldn't be saying that right now. Uh, We'll see how this goes. I'm not sure how this is going to go, but I'm excited and I'm very honored to be able to have this opportunity to do this. Thank you for being here this morning online. Thank you for showing up and giving us your time. It's it's a great honor to have that for just the next few minutes. So let's jump right into this. I am going to talk about <clears throat> uh, problems this morning. Okay, we're going to talk about problems, and I don't know about you guys, dads, or at least uh, father, uh, at least um, husbands, but dads. Maybe you feel like this before. I'm I'm going to do my best to not be a problem for my wife. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Ladies, I don't know if you know that power that you have over us. but sometimes it's like, I'm just going to make sure that I'm not a problem. That's all I want to do. I try my best. I'm going to do my best. And my wife then honors me, and she says, she calls me her trophy husband. <laughs> right? Her trophy husband. And people go, how did you get it? And she goes, it's just a participation award. <laughs> really. That's, that's all it is. Just want you to be aware of that. Okay, But our lives are drastically different. Ladies, if you're anything like my wife, she, she should be, guys, you probably can relate to this. She should be in, in glass, right, in a museum on display, right? Me, I got construction signs up all over the place. I'm constantly under improvement, That's the difference right there between my wife and myself. So Acts chapter 9, here's where we're going to go with this. Let's see what happens. Chapter 9, verse 15, it sounded good last night. Let's see what happens right now. Verse 15, Acts 9. But the Lord said to Ananias... Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Not a good way to start out, right? Those are some tough words right there for a guy who just got saved. All right, so this is where Saul had his Damascus experience. He gets saved on the road. He's blinded. Ananias comes to him and says, this guy is going to suffer in my name. All right. Why is life so hard? You ever ask yourself that question? Why, why, Why am I going through this? Why do I have to deal with this? And I want to give you three reasons that I think that God allows life to be so hard, all right, according to the Bible. So we're going to jump right into this. Number one, life is so hard because this planet, this world that we live in is broken, and he is giving the world time to repent before he makes all things new, okay, So that's problem number one, right there. He allows problems because he needs time to give us so that we can find his grace. Now, much of the hardness of life has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. I just want to make sure we understand that. You know, a lot of people think their problems have to do with, oh, man, I messed up. I blew it man, I'm, I'm not a good person. This must be why I'm going through what I'm going through. This is why God's punishing me. I just want you to try to get away from that way of thinking. Okay? I mean, think about it. The, the children of Israel, if that was the way he taught the children of Israel, he'd have ditched them a long time ago. All right? They, 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 his relationship with them was based on, on Abraham. And, and his, the fact that he wanted to have a relationship with people, okay? And so, basically, you can look at what happened in the, to the Israelites. I mean, they were struggling. They, they, they weren't perfect. They were a mess. And, and, and you come to, in the wilderness, and, and you get to the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Think about it. Before he even read the Ten Commandments, you know what he said to them? right before he gave the Ten Commandments out, he said, you are my people and I'm your God. He said, I just want to set, before we get into any rules, I just want to set the, 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 the story straight right here. It's about a relationship. It's not about the rules. All right, relationship always precedes the rules. And that's the way it is with God. And so they've blown it and they've blown it and they've blown it and they've blown it. In fact, in the 450 years before they even got into the wilderness, they had probably forgotten about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They they, they didn't know who they were anymore. And that's why he comes at them with, I am your God. You have done nothing for me. I have done everything for you. I'm your God and you're my people. And they're like, what? How, How did this happen? Now, let me give you a set of rules to help you understand how this is going to make a difference in your life. A set of relationship rules. Four of them are for me, the other six are with other people. That's really what the Ten Commandments is about. Okay? Rules guide us and direct us, and they're good for us. Who loves rules? Some people are rule followers, some people are very strong rule followers. Are you a rule follower? My wife's a rule follower. She can't cross the street unless there's a the corner or the walk, right? Otherwise, we're breaking the law. We got to Eugene at our church where we served uh, a long time ago, and the backyard didn't have a fence. So we built a fence. You know, when we built the fence, we could let the kids play in the backyard. The rules bring Freedom. Like that fence was like a boundary. It was like a rule. Okay. Now, it doesn't have to do with what you do or don't do. But even if you could be perfect, even if you could live a perfect life, you know what? You'd still have problems. You would still have problems. Why? Because this world is broken down. And nobody is exempt to the problems in the world. We all have them. Even the little things. The small things that we have to deal with. When God created us, we were perfect. There was nothing wrong with us. Everything was perfect. And then what happened when they blew it? Now you got pimples. Bad breath. All evidence of sin. Weeds. You know, all the little things that we have to deal with. You you ever drink, taking a drink of water and and it goes down wrong and now you're hacking away for the next 10 minutes? And what do people say? It went down the wrong pipe. That's not even accurate. Is that accurate? How many pipes do you have? I got one pipe, I'm pretty sure. What we should be saying is, it went down the right pipe wrong. That's, that's what we should honestly be saying. So as many of you know, I've, I've shared this a little bit before, um, but there's probably some new people in here but when I was growing up in Portland uh, mom, dad and I had an older brother and we went to church and everything was really great until about seven my dad had gotten Alzheimer's and his mind started to go and because his mind started to go he treated my mom differently and at about the same time my mom got cancer so she was sick and eventually they would divorce and my, mom, my dad would move away and and, uh, and it was just the three of us. And so as I was growing older, when I got to be about 12, mom's cancer finally took her away and she died. And so dad moved back into the house, but he was so sick and out of his mind that he couldn't even take care of me. Really, I was on my own. My older brother was doing his thing. I was kind of on my own. From, from 12 to 14, I basically was kind of doing my own thing. I had to get myself to school. I had to get myself, you know... Taking care of, washing the clothes, ironing, and doing all this stuff, getting downtown. I had to transfer two buses downtown Lloyd Center just to get to school. It was a pain. I had orthodontist appointment. I'm 13 years old. I'm finding my way to the orthodontist downtown Portland. It was like, it was crazy. I was like living my life. And I shouldn't have been. Well, you know what that can do to a person? And you and I are in the same boat. We've all, all of us are shaped by the things that we go through in life. You are who you are because of what you went through. And for me, it took a while to, <clears throat> to make sense of this, but what I've discovered is that I, I think part of my problem is And I've been working on this for a long time. I'm always working on this because I'm aware of it. But I, for a long time, have had a tendency to be unsympathetic. And I think that comes from me having to take care of myself all the time growing up. And so when something comes before me, like something small I might think to myself well I've gotten through this you know why can't you get through this now I'm not saying that's right but I'm saying that God has has, is having to deal with me and work on that now it's not that I don't care I care I'm a caring person but it's just that what I've had to go through it's kind of shaped me and it made me so that I can have a tendency to be sometimes unsympathetic and I've got to work on that And it's not that I don't care. It's just kind of how I'm shaped. And I've got to constantly be giving that to God. And that can be frustrating. It comes out in all different kinds of ways. But I do my best to show sympathy and to show care and and, and do that kind of thing. But I just want you to know that, you know, I'm in my boat here doing the same thing as everybody else. So Jesus did live a perfect life, and yet he had problems. Here on earth, his life was anything but easy, as we know. So it doesn't matter if you're perfect or if you're not perfect. Nobody is exempt to the problems of the world. Um, You're not religious enough, you know. A lot of people, he may have been perfect, but the way he was viewed by the religious He was not perfect. He was unreligious. Can you imagine that? You know, he's eating a meal with his disciples and the Pharisees who were always harassing him came to him one time, happened to see that they didn't wash their hands in between the different courses that they were eating and they confronted him and said, you know, you didn't wash your hands before the next course of the meal. And that's the way the Pharisees were. They were constantly... Loading up more and more rules and regulations on people to make life difficult for them, and that's everything that Jesus was against. And so he's like, "No, I didn't wash my hands before the course of the meal." In fact, it got so bad that you know, their scribes had written fifty pages alone on just how to wash your hands, and it just got ridiculous. It's that kind of thing. And so, you know, Jesus is like, "No." So they're like, "Well, you're unreligious. You know, you're not religious enough for us." And you're a problem. And imagine that. Here's Jesus, God, you know, the angels, heaven, but he's not religious enough. I find that ironic. But that's how they viewed him. And things, if, if I look at my own life and I, I look back and, and like I was here from 94, 90 to 94 as a youth pastor and then I, I took the church in Eugene um, and went solo down there for twenty years, so from ninety four to two thousand and fourteen i was I was in Eugene at, at a Wesleyan Church uh, pastoring well when you 're pastoring a church, I had a great time, raised my family there, three kids, had a great time, did you know had fun doing all that stuff, and pastoring was fun but and challenging at the same time, and especially when you 're in a smaller church, you know things aren 't always always rosy, you know to put it lightly. And there were times where, you know, finance, finances could have been an issue. It wasn't that we didn't, couldn't pay our bills. We paid our bills. But, you know, we couldn't always do the things we wanted to do. So one of the things we did to supplement income was we rented out our building. And we rented it to a, a Seventh-day Adventist church who happened to be uh, Korean. And they were wonderful, wonderful people. But they were uh, white-collar. We weren't. They were. They only had like fifty people in their congregation, but they, they had a lot of white collar people. In fact, I think at some point at one point I found out that they had like at least like five dentists. Can you imagine that? Five dentists in this small congregation alone. And I, I, I would I would wake up in the middle of the night going, How how can I get one of those dentists? Like If I just had one dentist who tithed, it would make a difference. What can I do? Maybe I can give them two board members. Cash. And a future first round. And three entirely sanctified members for just one dentist. That was my idea. And I was like, well, you, you know, you don't need five dentists anyway. You know, they always survey. You know, four out of five said there's always one that <laughs> is a throwout. You don't need five, right? But that was just the way I was thinking. So to answer the question about why life is so hard, you you have to remember what part of the larger story we are currently in according to the Bible. In other words, the Bible tells us three things, what happened, what is happening, and what's gonna happen, all right? So what did happen was that God made humans in his likeness, and they rebelled, all right? So here's two perfect people who blew it, and chose their own way. <clears throat> and so we went from don't eat the fruit. How do you do that? How do you go from don't eat the fruit to don't kill? That's what happened in a very short period of time. That's called human nature. That's human nature is exactly what does that. You go from don't eat the fruit to don't, thou shalt not kill. And I read a lot of news items, and so I was re- just, fa- just last week, I was, I was reading some new news items, and I came across this. I saw this heading, and it stuck out to me, and so I, I copied it down. And it caught my attention. Here's why it caught my attention. Uganda passes new law against stealing of human organs. And as I looked at it, and I thought, this, I can't believe I'm hearing this. We've gone from don't eat the fruit to don't steal people's organs, Having have to have a law to not steal somebody's organs. Is that where we're at? Unbelievable. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that God began to have this new relationship with his people. It started with Abraham. And he did it not because of what we did, He did it because of who we are. So you always got to go back to that. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Now, what's going to happen in the future is that God is going to make all things new again. All right? He's going to create a new heaven, a new earth. He's going to give Christians glorified bodies. It's going to be really amazing. You know, I hope you realize that. In fact... I found this in Revelation chapter 21. John, the apostle, writes in Revelation 21 about a lot of things that God's given him insight to about the end times. (coughs) Excuse me. And then he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. See, this is what we need to be excited about. We need to get up in the morning and go, you know what? This is not permanent. This is only temporary. We have something to look forward to. We have a hope that when we die, it's going to get so much better. I, you know, it really boggles my mind why people refuse to understand that. Simple concept that wouldn't it make sense to believe that after we leave here, there's something that's so encouraging you would think would be easy to believe, but it's not. But something that's so encouraging is we're going to have perfect, perfect bodies. We're going to live in a perfect place again for eternity and have relationships and work and serve God and do all these things forever and ever, never, never crying again. The Bible specifically says we're, we're going to get a new place to live, going to get a new body. Right? If you're young can't wait to get to that new place. If you're old, you can't wait to get to that new body. Isn't that right? I'm in that camp. I want a new body, and I want it now. But what is happening right now? Now is our time of choosing God. Now is that in-between time of choosing God, and God is only going to save those Who choose to receive the grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The world is still broken. The world is still a mess. But what is going to happen is that God is going to make all things new again. But he hasn't yet chosen that because he's waiting and giving lost people an opportunity to receive his grace. You think about that. Because here's what's interesting. The Bible tells us that to God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. And we can't make sense of that. Doesn't, we don't understand that, but that's how it is. God has no time frame. So, what may be a long time to us is like a blink of an eye to Him. So, He's not thinking about all the history of life. He's looking at our situation, going, I'm just giving them time to get saved. I want to have the biggest family possible. By the time it's all said and done. So I'm going to hang out here. I'm going to wait. While I'm waiting, they've got the Holy Spirit. They've got the comforter. They've They've got the help that they need to get through this. All right. And until that time comes, I'm waiting. Not only that, but honestly, life is a test, isn't it? life is a test and we're in the middle of this test and all we want to do is just get through it, right? We just want to get through this test. We just want to pass this test. Nobody likes the test, but that's where we're at and bottom line is the choices that you make are going to have a consequence. You're either going to be true or false. And you're going to pass or fail. There's a show that used to be on back in the 90s called Seinfeld. And there were four characters, Jerry and his three friends. And one of his friends was named George Costanza. All right. And the problem with George was that nothing ever worked out for him. Nothing. It always went south for him. Even to the very end. Never, ever anything worked out for him. Except once. When he was sitting in the diner with Jerry... And nothing was going right, and he was complaining about it. And Jerry said, If everything, every instinct that you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. And I'll never forget that. I wrote that down. I love that quote. That is so fantastic. And so that began a process in George's mind. You're right. Everything that I've done that's an instinct is wrong. What if I do the opposite? And so while they're sitting in the diner, he looks over and there's a beautiful woman over there and he goes, you know what? I'm going to go up to that woman. I wouldn't before, but now I'm going to go up to her. And he goes up to the woman and he says, hi, my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. (laughs) And she goes, Hi. (laughs) And he got the girl. And then he goes to George Steinbrenner to get a job with the Yankees. And he goes, I can't stand the way that you're running this beautiful, glorious team right into the ground. And Steinbrenner goes, you're hired. And he got a job with the Yankees. And, and, and everything is going great for the entire show. Everything's going great. And I thought to myself, you know, that's exactly like life. And a lot of times we, we, we use our instinct and we make the wrong move because we go with our gut and sometimes our gut is wrong. And if we would just do the opposite, we'll have some success. Right? And life is not supposed to be easy right now, now, now because we are at war For our own souls and for the lost souls of the world. So things aren't going to be right. All right, so that's the first thing. Number two, life is so hard because there's always a process to receive God's promises. It's very easy for us to focus on the promises of God, but to overlook the process to receiving those promises. A lot of times we just want to jump to the promise. God, just give me what I need. I don't want to go through this. I just want to get out of this. You know, stop the pain and get me out of here. But God doesn't want to do that. He wants you to walk through the fire and give you the ability to endure the fire, right? And so we have verses like this, Matthew 7, 7. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Right? Matthew 6 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. All right, so here we have two basic verses that have the same thing in common. And the same thing that they have in common is that before the promise, there's a process. You've got the promise, but you've got the process, all right? If you want to receive, You got to knock. If you want to receive, you got to seek. You want the door open, you got to knock, right? If we want the door to be open, you got to knock first. If we want to be taken care of, then we must first seek God. That's how it works. That's the process. Now, life has to be this relentless pursuit. But a lot of times we don't want to give that relentless pursuit. We, we, we go and go and go and then we stop and a lot of times we ease off and we relax and, and, we, and then we don't pursue anymore. And I'll never forget a long time ago, a long time ago, um, the automotive company Lexus had this commercial out. And you, you, some of you probably remember this. You've seen the commercial and they, at the end they go, Lexus, the relentless pursuit of perfection. Remember that? The relentless pursuit of perfection. And the way that came about was this marketing company for them went and visited Lexus designers at the plant in Japan. And they noticed their meticulous attention to detail and they went, man, they are relentless. And that's how they came up with that slogan. And I look at that and I go, you know what? That's, that's how it is with us. We have got to give this relentless pursuit of perfection in order to get where we need to be, right? Now, I've got a son. He's 21. name is Cole. And when he was growing up, he loved sports. He played all the different sports. No matter what it was, he wanted to get in there and play sports. And <clears throat> he didn't always have the best coaches. I mean, you know how Little League Baseball is. And basketball and soccer. And a lot of these are like, you know, parent coached. And I'm not saying that parents are bad. I'm just saying that sometimes parents aren't coaches, right? And so a lot of times he wasn't, you know, coached on how to do something. They, they These guys are just trying to keep their sanity, you know, and and control these kids. Well, <clears throat> the thing about Cole was that he loved to improve at something. And so he would do everything he could to get better at something. And later on, it got to the point where, like, he would want me to, if he, he got into hurdles in junior high, and we would go over to the church, and we'd set up these, this tape in an aisle kind of like this, and then he'd practice doing the hurdles. And he would ask me to record him so that he could see all of his little flaws because he'd watch videos and he'd see how to, to, how, to, how to do it. And then he'd want to go see if he could do it that way. And then, and then he would make corrections based on what he saw, right? Or if he's golfing, when he got into high school, he started golfing and the coach didn't coach him. So he had to learn how to golf on his own and he would just pour over videos. And then even today, not long ago, I went out with him to the range, and he said, "Dad, you know, record me. He still does it twenty one years old he's like, "I need to record my swing. I got to get better and it was just like every time I think of that, I think of, of of the relentless pursuit it's a very inspiring it's been very inspiring to me to have him in my life and with that kind of an attitude, right <clears throat> so we must continually pay attention, right, to the details in our life and do our best to honor God. We're not always going to do our best. Sometimes this can actually affect how we approach God. You know, you make mistakes and blow it, and then you, wanna, you don't want to go to God, right? And, and, you, and you don't want to talk to God, but then you've got all this stuff pinned, you know, pent up in you and you want to get it out and oh you know I don't know if I should share that I don't know if I want to tell God that you know that doesn't make any sense because God's not like God's up in heaven going oh don't say that you know you'll shock the angels right God's not up there saying that but he wants us to come to him with every little thing are you going to be perfect? no you're not going to be perfect there's a portion of The Wesleyan doctrine, John Wesley, who our church is named after, it's called Christian perfection, right? But it's not talking about the fact that we can be perfect here on earth. It has nothing to do with it. John knew that we were not going to be perfect on this earth. Wesley said that perfection here is based on a completeness, a wholeness that we have based on serving our purpose, right? So, so if I look at this chair here or the stool and go, you know what? I would say that this stool is perfect. Why is this stool perfect? Because it serves its purpose. It is complete and whole, and it was designed to sit on and hold a person up. So in a sense, it is perfect in the fact that it's serving its purpose, it's complete and it's whole. And that's how you and I can be. We're perfect in the sense that as we continue to follow God's will and walk in the light that he gives us, that he's gonna make us perfect only in the sense that our life is gonna be complete. And it's that kind of direction and purpose that we have in our life that we wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I'm looking forward to the day. So another reason God is allowing your life to be hard is because the pain, the pain that God is preparing you to receive are the promises that are ahead. We go through the pain now for the promises later. The process brings the promise. And all we really want to do is get rid of the process, get rid of the pain. But you can't have the promise without the pain. So there's a the trade off there. One final thing. This is a thought that came to me, and that is that life is so hard because God is giving you opportunities to glorify Him. You know, all of our life we have the opportunity to give God the glory. There's nothing more enjoyable for me than to go outside at night in the summertime and look up and see the stars in the sky. It sounds stupid, it sounds simple, it sounds cliche, but when I see the moon, I see the stars, when I recognize, I have, I have an app that I can point into the sky using my camera and it, and it shows that, oh, that's Saturn, that's Mars, right? And when I recognize that God placed all that in the heavens, That just reminds me of who I am. That God is bigger than me. And he's done all this. I don't feel small. I find purpose in that. That God is my creator. And throughout the Bible, the answer is consistently that We were made to glorify God. Rick Warren, who's a pastor down in California, wrote a book a long time ago called Purpose Driven Life. And in The Purpose Driven Life, he talked about five different purposes that we have. And he said the number one purpose in life is to worship God. That was the number one purpose. Before you do anything else, your first purpose in life is to worship him. To just love him, to worship him. C.S. Lewis even said, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. How much do you enjoy God? It comes in the worship. Right? And you can worship God any way you want to. We teach us in the back. We teach the kids. And, and we ask the question how do you worship God? Oh, we sing. Oh, we we pray. Oh, we go to church. And I go, you know what? You take out the garbage. And you do it with a good attitude. And that's worship. All right, so next time your kid doesn't want to go out, take the garbage out, it's home. You go worship God right now. (laughs) You go right now, have a good attitude, worship him. That's how you do it. But when you use your life for God's glory, everything you do becomes an act of, of, of worship. Everyone has a different way of worshiping God. Everybody does. No matter where where you come from, no matter what religion you are. Now, like the Amish, I'm not gonna pick on the Amish, but I'm just I'm just saying, and I respect the Amish. You know, they come from the Mennonite, uh, the Mennonite's uh, denomination, and this is what I read about them. The Amish are a group of traditionalist, Anabaptist, Christian church fellowships with Swiss German and Alsatian origins. They are closely related to Mennonite churches, a separate Anabaptist denomination. And it goes on to say, life is spiritual activity, and they demonstrate their religious beliefs daily through their own actions of discipleship, plainness, non-resistance, forgiveness, and non-violence. Now, I actually like this. I like this. I respect the Amish, have you ever, you know, I, have you ever visited an Amish community before? I went to one a long time ago. I was in Iowa and I, I visited a, an Amish community. It's quite the experience, you know, as an adult. I don't know if it'd be the same for a kid, though. You know, for a kid, <laughs> you'd, like, you'd be like, why, why do I want to go, you know, visit this place that looks like everybody's just grounded you know, they don't have anything. They, they can't have anything. They're just like, they're grounded. That, in a matter of fact, can affect how we parent, right? Like next time, you, next time your kid gets in trouble, go up to your room right now. You're Amish for the weekend. And don't come down until you've made some noodles or built a barn. All right? That's how it does. That's how it goes. I'm done with you. But God desperately, he wants us to bring him glory. He wants us to worship him. He looks forward to it. He looks forward to us getting up in the morning and and recognizing him. Well, how do we do this? And I've thought about this for a long time. I've honestly thought about this for a long time, but I'm not, never really quite sure how to phrase it. But I came up with this, and I think it, it kind of is like this. Now, this could probably use some improvement. This came at about 4 a.m., <laughs> But this probably used a lot of work. But I'm just going to throw this out there. But I thought this is is one phase of it. But don't work on loving God. Work on trusting him. And I really find peace in that. Because there's a long time in my preaching in my other church where I was doing it all wrong. I'd get up and say, hey, you need to love God. Man, you need to love God. You're not loving God good enough. You you, you need to do better. You need to love God. And what I was doing without knowing it was I was, you know, heaping the law on top of these people and creating a burden. And that's not what I wanted to do, but that's what I was doing. And it dawned on me, and I thought, you know, we can't do this. Honestly, God's message is about grace. And I, rather than telling someone to love God, because you can't tell people to love God, but you can, you can ask them to trust him. And as we begin to trust God more and understand who he is and what he did for us, that's where the love comes from. Love, love is a byproduct of trust when you think about it. And therefore, <clears throat> The, when it's, love is simply a response to God. That's, because he, that's why he said, um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So love is a response. When I understand how much God loves me, that motivates me to love him back. And that's based on the trust that he has given to me. All right, he's got a great track record. And trust is the process that takes time. It can take a lifetime. But you don't have to feel guilty, right? If you love him and love him and love him or are told to love him, and then you don't and you blow it, that guilt comes. But I, I always got to go back to, hey, this is what God did for me. He loves me and he wants me back. Okay? And that's the way it is with people. You and I deal with this all the time. I'm sure there's not one person in here who hasn't, you know, probably been burned by somebody at some point. Whether it's a friend or a relative, a coworker, whatever. Someone's burned you at some point. You know, and they've hurt you. And you're saying to yourself, I don't want to forgive that person. I'm not going to trust that person ever again. And God is saying to us, I'm not asking you to trust them. But I am asking that you forgive. Because forgiveness can come in an instant. It's a choice. Trust has to be earned. Always and forever. But God never did me wrong. Deeds have been done. The ball's in my court. All I have to do is put my trust in him. That's why it says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Two words, work out. Those two words work out there that when, when when you define that in the original, it's a continuous workout. It doesn't stop. Okay? You keep going. All of your life you are working out your trust in God. All right. We have never, we will never arrive. Isn't that what Paul said? I have not arrived. But he said, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. That's why I get up in the morning and go, Lord, it, ain't, it doesn't end here. I have a prize waiting for me. And I trust that you're going to come back just like you said. And I trust God because He gave me a reason to. So I want to take just a moment. I want to pray with us, for us. <clears throat> so let's bow our heads, Lord. We seek Your face. Thank You so much for what You did. Thank You for the cross, for what it means, for how You've made a difference. Lord, You've called me to be faithful. You gave the Holy Spirit. as a a comforter, someone to walk alongside of me because you knew that there was going to be trouble. You predicted it. You said, in the world there's trouble, but in me there's peace. And Lord, I want to rely on your peace to get me through each and every day. There's going to be times where I blow it. There's going to be times where I mess up, but Lord, help me to remember that you're waiting for me. You're not pushing me away. You look forward to me coming back. So if there's somebody here and you just need to take that next step of forgiveness for somebody or trust, Lord, if you you have an issue, I want you to take it to God and leave it at the cross. He wants to take it and get rid of it so that you can have a new perspective, that you can have a new outlook. The sky is going to be bluer. The grass is going to be greener all because you put your faith in him, you trusted him. In the name of Jesus, amen.